Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. This week it's episode number 33 and it's with Lauren Curry. She is a, a service designer, studied at DJ CAD. Um, I think she was a year above me actually. Um, and then went on to do a master's at DJ CAD as well, master's in design. And then went off to sort of champion service design uh, throughout Scotland, the UK, and I suppose throughout the world as well. Um, I mean, Lauren's used service design and her other skills to, to sort of champion so many fantastic causes um, to really make great social change and have massive impact as well. Um, and we talk about a bunch of those projects um, from our time at Snook and from a few other things um, that she's been up to right through to the role that she's got at the moment as part of Good Lab, um, which seems like an amazing opportunity. She's, she's part of a team that are working with uh, 12 of the, the best known charities in the UK to sort of look at ways in which they can innovate in order to to gain funding, um, which seems like a really interesting challenge. And I mean, it's something that Lauren's sort of set out for um, in her sort of work for social good, um, but also turning things in their heads and, and really coming up with interesting and, and new solutions to problems. And I was actually lucky enough to do this interview face to face. It just so worked out that I was down in London um, and we managed to meet up and yeah, it, it saved me having to do a remote podcast because I've not actually done that yet. Um, which, absolutely, if I can avoid it, um, I totally will and try and get everyone face to face because I think it's, I mean, it makes your, your job as an interviewer a bit easier, but you just have a, a much more relaxed conversation. Yeah, it just sets up for a better a better chat. Um, and it's funny because it's actually the flip for, for Lauren. She'd never done one face to face. She'd always done them over Skype or um, over the phone. So yeah, I mean, it, it was great to go down and meet her and meet sort of chat through her, her whole journey and, and through some really interesting stuff and, and some of her thoughts generally. And, and but just to to flag up what's uh, happening a little further down the line. Um, I've got some amazing interviews lined up for the next few weeks. Um, some people that you might well know. Uh, we've got director at Creative Scotland, Clive Gilman, is coming on. Uh, we've also got Mao Abbas, who uh, is part of Biome Collective. So he runs that um, down out of the Vision Building in Dundee. And uh, Claire Brennan, uh, who's part of Abertay, uh, the Hannah McClure Centre. And I've also got Angie Miller, who is a script supervisor. And she's worked on some amazing projects from Mad Max to Peter Pan, Superman, um, amongst a whole load of other titles. Um, she's from Australia, but she has been in Dundee working on the Schemers film. So I got around and we had a chat about that as well. So yeah, the next few weeks are, are shaping up quite nicely. So lots of exciting podcasts to sort of entertain you while you're on your holidays but yeah that's it for this week's introduction let's get into the podcast so this is episode number 33 and this is with lauren curry so i went to duncan and jordanston to study product design on a mission to be the next james dyson who would you know make an object that would change the world and make me really rich and 
very quickly discovered this thing called service design, which is you know a discipline that uses all the same processes and methodologies that you'd use to make a chair or or a lamp, but applying it to a service or a system. And I was particularly excited about what that would mean for public services and what it would mean for you know social services that really matter. So I then spent the summer with design thinkers in Amsterdam after I graduated. They were one of the very first service design outfits in Holland. And they um, were the kind of catalyst for me setting up the Red Jotter blog, which I set up as a kind of diary to use uh, during my internship with them. Is there a story behind the name Red Jotter? I've always wondered that. Yeah, there is a bit. So... It was very, I literally was on the way out the door going to the airport. It was like very rushed. So moral of the story, there was no strategy or plan or logo or anything. Um, And I've always really loved the colour red. It's just, you know, I've read notebooks and just like red things, pretty standard. And I thought my original idea was red pencil. And I called my friend at the time, Ali Hunter, who was studying architecture at Duncan and Jordanston. And he was like, yeah, that's shit, you can't call it that. So then I thought, well, what about a red jotter? Because, you know, my notebooks are always red. And on hindsight, I now realise that jotter's quite a specific um, word to Scotland. It's not really a word that people are familiar with all over the world. So it always kind of sparks a conversation of people asking me, what does jotter mean and where did that come from? And just purely by accident because I always have a red moleskin it very quickly became a bit of a, a brand on its own which was really lovely and it's been really easy for me to amplify that over the years using different um, tools and stuff so yeah set up my blog and during that time in Amsterdam uh, Hazel White and some of the other professors at the university had been reading it and invited me to come back and do a master's and it was a master's in design which meant I had real scope to focus on whatever I wanted to focus on and I saw it as an opportunity to really specialise in service design because studying, trying to become a service designer in a product design environment was very difficult because my tutors were very engineering focused and didn't really know what I was going on about so at that point, so I also did the same masters. Okay. Probably the year, oh, the yeah. year after, yeah. So I mean, you made it seem like that decision was quite easy, quite an easy one, just to, to go straight into the masters. But it's it's not necessarily a common path to go undergrad then straight to masters. But did that just feel like the natural progression? Yeah, I think it was a combination of I already had my flat in Dundee, and I was you know settled and happy there. And I was so focused and determined to be a service designer. But I was aware that I hadn't really gone into it in the depth that I wanted to. Um, and I was also, you know, didn't really want to move to London. Wasn't That idea wasn't appealing at that time. And I think in my head it was, you know, it's only a year, it'll fly by and it'll give you the creative freedom and the space to... The brief I set myself was I was going to use that year to get the dream job. And I was really on a mission to, you know, I made friends with all the agencies, I made friends with all the practitioners, I went to all the events, I did lots of internships, I was really active online, sharing what I was learning and building up a a real 
really authentic community of people who were excited about the same stuff. And, you know, lo and behold, through that, I ended up meeting Sarah, which led to Sarah and I setting up Snook. So, on reflection, it does tell us quite a smooth story, but at the time it was all very, you know, serendipitous stuff that I never predicted. So, I met Sarah um, after my master's when I was doing an internship at Think Public, who were one of the very first service design agencies in London to focus on social change. And Sarah came along as a participant to one of the workshops I was leading. And, you know, long story short, I think, you know, both of us very aware that Scotland's a small place and we were both really passionate about the same things. Um, Very complementary skill set, but also very different personalities and different ways of doing stuff. And it seemed to just fit. Um, And then... The day after her graduation, Sarah ended up winning Social Innovation Camp, um, hungover, and, and typical Sarah uh, style, ended up bagged the prize with the idea for My Police, which was an online platform to bridge the gap between citizens and their local police force. Um, and she then got a call from a journalist and you know it was very quickly she realised that this idea was something special but then she had signed up to do her own masters so that was an opportunity for me to step in and really take the lead on building my place and to get the funding um, money from my place we had to have a bank account and we had to be a registered company so Snook was born because we, you know, my place was very much just a project. It didn't capture the whole focus of how can we use design and creativity to craft an alternative future for Scotland? How can we use design to make Scotland a better place? And so Snook was set up as the kind of umbrella organisation and my place was our first project. Again, Snook's an unusual name. Where did did that emerge from? Yeah, so that's another really nice story that actually came from my gran so my gran used to say things like um oh this is the snooks when you'd be cozying up in front of a fire or getting into bed like fresh made sheets you know that kind of like snuggly content feeling and Sarah and I both really wanted a name that was specific to Scotland and a word that didn't have a very obvious meaning so we googled it and it turns out that snook is a type of fish and then so that's the predominant meaning and then the second meaning is it comes from the phrase cock a snook which is when you put your thumb on your nose and wiggle your fingers that's like a cock a snook symbol so we were like yeah that works we're cocking a snook to london and cocking she says sitting in london we will get back to that but um cocking a snook to the people who thought we were crazy because we were both 22, 23, never set up a business before, had never had a job before, you know, we were both fresh out of university but um, very determined and ambitious so snook seemed to fit and... um, So you sort of set it up when service design was very much in its early days Um, and you then, I suppose... You're trying to then sell a, a service to people who don't necessarily understand what it is or the value of it or have many things to compare it against. So how did you go about 
sort of building Snook up as a as a business and selling it into clients? Yeah, so what you described was very much reality. Um, it was not a term that people recognised. It was not a discipline that was established in Scotland by any means. And, you know, that that was what I spent, you know, every every moment of every waking hour focused on inspiring people, educating people, informing people about what service design was, why it was important, why it mattered, what it looked like in action, what a project might be, why they need to take it seriously. So definitely a, a hard slog, but at the time it was, you know, I loved it because I believe and still do very much believe in the process and the mindset that comes with service design and, you know, now... Now it's much more common, much more established, and Snook are in a really brilliant place, delivering big projects and winning big contracts, and got a big team, and you know it's all it's all worked out, so it's good. So how come you're not still there? Yeah, good question. So that's I guess another another bit of a a journey that I went through. Um, Kind of realising that I wasn't going to run Snook till I was 100, which was always the, you know, unquestionable future that I painted for myself. And it was a combination of lots of things. I think anybody who's run an agency can relate to the reality that as your agency grows, you do less and less of the work. You become a manager of people. You become somebody who writes tenders. You become... The person who has to think about holiday pay and pensions and um, I felt that I was giving so much to the community and giving so much out there that um, I wasn't getting very little back. started to feel quite isolated and that there's not very many people at that time. Um, weren't very many people doing really, really exciting kind of cutting edge stuff and just thought that, you know, Snook was in a great place and it almost felt like, you know, my work my work here is done. I want to move on to something bigger and better where I can have more impact faster. Mm. And also wanted to feel what it felt like to have a job and have a boss and have a weekend and um, have headspace to think about other things. So, you know, that was a really... It was a... A significant time for Sarah and I to kind of figure out what that meant and untangle things and maintain our friendship and our kind of commitment to each other through through all of that, which we're both really proud of ourselves that um, we're still a big part of each other's lives and big support to each other. And I'm really proud of what Snook is now. Because I think from chatting to a lot of people now, it's those pivot points in your life that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's the points where you go actually this is not right anymore and it's the reasons why you sort of go right well what is and it sort of makes you question Mm -hmm. that and that's really what I'm starting to learn is that is what in people's journeys that actually makes it really interesting and that it's normally there is an aspect of risk in that as well so sort of tied in yeah I mean that that, so my that whole thing for me was sparked by the relationship I was in breaking down in a really horrible nasty way um and that made me be like, shit, what's what's happening? Where? What's important? What really matters to me? You know, and at the time that was horrible, but I'm so happy and grateful that that happened. Uh, because it, 
yeah, at that moment, you know, I was, we were winning awards, I was on the front cover of magazines, clients were coming in, our team was growing, you know, everything, people were telling me I was crazy to walk away and, you know, on paper it didn't really make much sense, but it just didn't feel right anymore. And I kind of worked really hard to keep listening to that and do something about it. So what was, where did you go next? What was the next step? Um, so I really wanted to go to New York um, because I won a place on an entrepreneurship course at MIT in Boston and that was another, definitely a big trigger point um, being in Boston in a room where everybody in the room thinks the same as you or, you know, blows your mind by what they're working on. That was not a thing I was familiar with. So... Yeah, the conversations I was having with different projects and different agencies, you know, visas were going to take a while. It was looking, starting to get a bit messy. So yeah, I got offered a job at a school, uh, a private educational institution down in Manchester to build what I think is the world's first MA in digital experience design. So teaching's always something I've done lots of. I really love teaching and working with, you know, people who are at the start of their careers. And I went down there and spent a year kind of turning a a course outline and a word document into a real live curriculum and worked with I think eighteen students from all over the world, which was yeah, amazing, amazingly rewarding and really great fun. Um but, you know, after a few months of doing that, I was already getting itchy feet on having my own thing again. I think I'm definitely somebody who uh, thrives and gets gets a lot of energy and fulfilment from building something from scratch and kind of leading it and owning it. But so the projects you've done um, sort of over your career... They've all been, well, a lot of them have been around social issues and around making really big change to things. Um, and it, it makes me wonder, so there's obviously, I mean, there's so many issues around you all the time. Why do you attach yourself to certain ones and not others? So what is it about certain things like, say, sugar or mm. local police or mm. whatever that the, the spark goes off and it goes, right, I'm going to do something about that? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the process, I, I think I found this really lovely um, quote from uh, Swissmith, a designer that I follow online, and she talks about you can only complain about something three times and then you have to try and fix it. And I think that's a really powerful kind of mantra to stick to. Um, I do complain a lot about a lot of stuff because there's a lot of stuff that is just not good enough. And a lot of products and services and situations and policies and all that stuff that are causing harm. Um, and sometimes it can feel quite overwhelming. It's like I want to be working on more than what I'm capable of. But I think having the determination and kind of focus to choose one and really dig into it and focus on it is... I think it happens quite naturally. It's like that thing of when you get a spare five minutes where does your mind wander to and what one are you most drawn to um, and that's definitely what's what happened with um, yeah the sugar, pro- the sugar project the dearest Scotland stuff 
and now of course up front being you know all started on a kind of personal experience that I had and has now turned into a bigger thing tackling a bigger problem for lots more people yeah well you sort of there but let's talk a little bit about upfront mm-hmm. um and obviously that came from a was it a, a feeling that there's a lack of diversity in conferences yeah so it was sparked by like i do a lot of keynote speaking and i do a lot of talking on stages and most of the time or quite often i'm the only woman on the stage only women on the panel and the meeting whatever it might be and there was a particular event in Bristol where I just I was just so mad and I was so angry that nobody was taking it seriously. Um, so I kind of took a bit of a risk and mentioned it in my actual talk. And that led to a big queue of people at the end of the talk waiting to speak to me. Men and women, the conference organisers, you know, really rallying behind me on, you're absolutely right, how can we fix this, how can we make this better? Which seems mad, in that no one's seen it up to that point. Yeah, but it's so normal. And it's almost, it's so... It's one of these things that I think even when people do see it, it's like, well, but what do we do? Um, which is, you know, a big problem with where we see lots of inequality across lots of different things, you know, from race to gender and, yeah, some of it, it can feel so insurmountable because the problems are so complex and it's all so systemic and entrenched in how we are and how we're trained to behave and what community, what society tells us to do and, um... I think really, really zoning in on the on the stage aspect of it all was a really wise choice because it helped me to design a solution for a very specific part of the problem. So when I started to ask people, you know, why are you not on stage? You're you're brilliant and you've never done a talk before, or you know, why are you not on panels talking about this amazing project you're working on and you know, there's a whole host of reasons why people either don't want to, don't feel comfortable, don't get asked, don't know how. Um, but there was a really common pattern of people saying that the idea of actually standing on a stage was so scary. It was just like, there's no fucking way you're getting me up there because it's terrifying. And the very first time you're up there is when you're up there and there's a spotlight on you and everybody's looking at you. So my thinking was actually really simple. It was about how can people like me, who go on stage a lot, bring other people onto the stage with me so that they get to practice? And kind of out of that grew the upfront approach, which is about keynote speakers sharing their stage, sharing their power. They all get, they all have a big couch next to them where people from the audience who have pre-selected beforehand... Um, they get to sit on stage without the pressure of performing. So they get to hear their, you know, their heart beating really loud and sweating and shaking and all the scary things that happen when you look out and see a big sea of faces staring at you. But this, there's much less anxiety. So it's like 100% spotlight, 0% anxiety because they don't, they don't speak. Um, and it's the speaker's job to, you know, introduce them. And you know, make sure they're still a very active part of the conversation. And then 
afterwards you know my team do a lot of aftercare work and like evaluation stuff with everybody who takes part so now we've had over 100 people have sat on the upfront couch at conferences all over the world and I'm really trying to build an approach that any speaker feels they can take on board and use that conference organisers can work with Um, there is a structure there are some brand guidelines because we have had a few over-enthusiastic wildcards who have gone and used the upfront approach without involving our team which can sometimes um, go a bit wrong and isn't the best experience for the people taking part so we do encourage you know if anybody if there's any speakers listening or anybody who's organizing an event just get in touch and we can kind of guide you through the process step by step and you know through doing that work with all those conferences and all the people who have sat on the couch I quickly realized that you know it is such a bigger problem of confidence just being really out of date and you know antiquated it's like I think it's a lot of the products and services and narratives around confidence are very male and very American and feel tired and I think and so I'm on a mission to change confidence and change how people talk about it, how pe- the, the relationship people have with it and make it really, really easy and accessible for people to understand that every single person has got a voice and it's actually super easy to learn how to use the voice. If, if you use your voice, um, if somebody shows you how. So I think I mean, confidence is something that has come up um, quite a lot in the podcast and it's, it's quite interesting to to sort of understand how confident someone is and how they feel within themselves. And I don't know if you can necessarily just tell someone how to, to change it around and just be confident. Mm. It's just like it's a very hard thing to turn on and off. It's something that, to me, feels like it, it naturally builds over time and it's something that comes with your practice. Um, and as you become more experienced and you try and you fail and you move on, mm. that you then develop and that confidence then comes. Um, so it's more, I suppose it's more of a reassurance that if you just keep keep working hard and keep at it, that the confidence will come eventually. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I, definitely this idea of, you know, learn how to be confident is, you know, go to one workshop and you'll be transformed is definitely, you know, a myth. I think it's a big part of Upfront is actually being the catalyst for that conversation, for people to realise that, there is no silver bullet, there is no recipe for success and that most of the people you and I have on pedestals that we think are have the type of confidence that one day we would want to have are also on their own journey with this stuff. So I think we make the mistake of, you know, once I get that job or once I've been practising for this many years or once I you know, move to this city or find this partner or whatever it might be, the confidence will come. And the reality is that it just changes shape at every stage of your life. There's always an inner dialogue of, you know, self-doubt and self-criticism that is different for everybody and different depending on what stage of your life you're at. But I, you know, I'm amazed at the impact it has on people when I talk about really well-known speakers who I know who talk, who have told me that they're terrified and you would never ever know or never guess and 
I think part of it is busting some of the myths around that mm-hmm. stuff to make people feel just it's just it's okay to to be scared and it's okay to be nervous and it's okay to be un you know be nervous about sharing what you're you know sharing your fears or speaking up about what you're feeling uncertain about or whatever um, and I think we can all play a part in that by just like role modeling that behavior so it's something that I try and I remember one day with when I was teaching I ended up crying in, in front of my students for I can't actually remember why now but I was so amazed that you know a few of the students spoke to me afterwards and had this kind of I can't believe you cry because they had me on this you know she's made it and she's super confident she's powerful and knows what she's doing she's got it all figured out and I'm like no you know I still cry a lot I still have days where I'm freaking out and don't know what I'm doing, don't know why I'm doing it. And it's like, I think everybody does. And the more we can just make it okay to share that, then the more, hopefully, it'll kind of open up a space for those vulnerabilities to come out. Yeah, because I think self-doubt, even for me, is massive. Mm. Like running your own business, it's kind of like, next month I'll be able to pay the mortgage, I'll be able to eat. Yeah, like all these things, like where's my next bit of work coming from? And just all these other things just swirl around in your head over time you, you learn coping mechanisms and you, you learn that you build a network around yourself as a support and that if someone doesn't come it will eventually and it's having that confidence in the network and the people that you know and the work that you do that, that things will be okay in the end and it's just sort of dampening down that, that thing but we create this unhealthy I don't know what to call it but it's just the way we use social media and the way we promote mm. ourselves is all very glossy and all very much the best version of ourselves whereas in reality that's not how things work yeah it's like if only they could see me now I've not washed my hair and I've got jogging clothes on <laughs> <laughs> and it's that's it is it's like that's not something anybody would Instagram or no. be like oh you know it's like we we look at we're comparing our reality to other people's showreels. So it's like, you know, there's no no wonder we we get anxious and feel that we're not doing enough. Um, and, you know, I think everybody... It's like trust that you're doing enough of the right amount of things at the right time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's really good about the podcast is you can get an honest response from someone mm. and that's what I'm kind of trying to do is to sort of dig below that public facing persona and say well what is actually happening and why did mm. you make those decisions mm. and what are the shit days like yeah. <laughs> rather than just going oh I saw that great thing that you put on whatever and that project you did that was amazing and successful and all the rest yeah. of it. I suppose that um, sort of leads us into the concept of success mm-hmm. which has been a massive theme throughout everything completely unintentionally it's not when I started out the podcast it wasn't up on my list of priorities to talk about but Mm -hmm. it's just weaved its way into almost every uh, discussion and because I'm kind of interested to get everyone's perception of of what success is Mm. and I mean you've won many awards and so yes I suppose in in some ways you could say that you're like one of the the poster children of DJ CAD um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um, I think that success is something that people latch on to and they like to promote and then people love to give awards and make lists and do things like that and <laughs> yeah. yeah and just I mean it can all be quite I don't know superficial 
Um, but I'm interested to get your perspective on what what you feel success is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's such a hard question. I was I was thinking about it, and you know, it's funny you should mention the the DJ CAD stuff because I am absolutely so proud of that. And but yeah, I think I think I kind of see it in a few different ways. So there's like personal life success and work success, and then it all kind of mushes into just be this vision of are you successful or not and I think for me the ultimate success or what I want what I'm working towards is to have ultimate freedom so that means that I don't have to necessarily work potentially I don't have to I don't have to do anything like all of it is a choice so I choose and like ultimate freedom on where you live, what you spend your time on, who you spend your time with, um, and being able to really design the life that you want. Um, so in many areas, I feel like I'm just at the start of my journey and you know working towards those much bigger goals. But I am very proud of you know the successes that you mentioned around you know setting up Snook and the different projects that we've launched and um, the work that I'm doing now. Um, my personal life I feel yeah so grateful and happy to have you know to have met Chris and to be building the life that we're building in, in London together and you know that definitely feels very successful but then what does that mean because it's all you know relationships are also ongoing projects it's like things that you're always working on um so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It's quite a hard one for me to answer. I think that's kind of the point. Yeah. I just throw it out to everyone and yeah. they, everyone sort of says that. They're like, oh, I don't know if that is and what. And it's so hard to quantify, I think. that, yeah. it's, And it's different for everyone. It changes every day. Mm. And there's small things, there's big things, there's long-term goals, there's short-term goals, there's getting through the day. Yeah, that exactly. might be a success. I mean, I think if you'd asked me... You know, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have had an answer. Five years before that, I would have had an answer. And I and I know myself well enough now to know that I don't think I will ever, ever answer that by saying, yep, yeah, I'm successful. Because I am never satisfied. I'm always... And that is... Probably does me more harm than good sometimes. Because amazing things will happen and I go straight on to yeah but need to do it better this time or that wasn't quite right or how can we make that bigger and better and faster and um, so I'm you know constantly teaching myself how to celebrate more and um, be more mindful and recognise the the great work that I am doing and the things that I'm achieving and all the brilliant stuff that's going really well Um, so in your in your daily life um, where are your moments of joy? Um, moments of joy. I think they come from people. Like, I am a huge people person. So, whether that be, you know, sharing, like, sharing a joke or a new story with people at work or, you know, meeting a new person on the tube or having an email exchange with somebody I've not heard from for a while it's like all of that 
it's like interacting with people. You know, I'm hugely extroverted, if you can't tell already. So I get a lot of energy and um, kind of excitement and creativity from people and, you know, music and energy and dancing and all that kind of stuff. So um, they probably come in lots of different shapes and forms from people, from like the text that my mum will send me to, you know, the coffee I'll have with Chris in the morning to chats I'll have at work people so we've talked about a lot about the past um, you're now in London with a new job mm-hmm. um, what are you up to so yeah it still feels new but I've actually been there for over a year now which is crazy so I am working with uh, an amazing organisation called Good Lab so they have been set up by a consultancy called um, Good Innovation to respond to the crisis really that's happening across the charity sector and that their kind of tried and tested business models aren't working so well anymore. The laws changed around how charities can use data um, and the directors at Good Innovation had this you know, really quite extraordinary vision of imagine we could get the big charities to collectively commit to trying to tackle this problem. So long story short, Good Lab is set up um, to build a business that will bring in £250 million of profit to the entire charity sector annually by 2026. Ryan Straws hit the floor. So that's a huge goal. And the charities have um, funded our small core team. We've got a core team of five. And we've got three years figure this out and we're so that's a tiny team and a massive goal yeah that is indeed so we are working you know we work with lots of different experts um and we work in a very networked way where we can pull in expertise as and when we need so i work at good lab four days a week um and it's hugely challenging in terms of the size of the commercial goal um and also very satisfying given that every single thing that we work on is being is being worked on with the vision that it will become real and it will get further investment and we have got the buy-in and the um the support of 11 of the country's biggest charities which is really powerful so yeah that's um that's my focus and then on my one day a week where i'm not at good lab I'm focusing on upfront, and I also do some of my own kind of red jotter consultancy with different clients. Because I mean that the good lab stuff sounds like it's the perfect sort of direction. Because the stuff you've done before, so it's all about big social change and mm-hmm. making a difference. And then you can do that with a tiny little team, so you don't have to do any of the management and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And you just get it done and go and do it and have a massive aspirational goal. And yeah, it seems like. How did, I mean, how did you find out about the opportunity? How did it come about? And... Yeah, I mean, it really does feel... Yeah, it really does feel special. Like, I don't know of any other project set up like it. Um, and it was through... So Ellie Ford is the director of the lab, and she's off on maternity leave at the moment, but I've known Ellie for a lot of years um, through a mutual friend. We have uh, Cassie Robinson, and that was kind of... Ellie joined as a director and sent me an email to say, you know, this is exciting, do you want to come and chat? And, you know, I was immediately hooked just by the size of the ambition and also by the opportunity to work closely with 
with Ellie. So it definitely feels like a really great combination of what I've done before and what I'm good at. And that it, of course, has got a huge social remit because charities are charities. But it's also got a huge commercial ambition. Um, and I really do believe that genuine social change that can make an impact and, and have a difference uh, requires you know, requires revenue, requires a sustainable business model. And I think a lot of socially focused designers are guilty of the kind of pro bono social enterprise space that might not always make commercial sense. So I want to prove that you can do both. Um, one other thing that I, that I was doing my research and I came across that I was really interested about was that you gave stand-up comedy a go. Mm. Um, how was... I'm interested to find out how that experience was mm. and if your sort of design training and your background helped in any way make that experience easier or better or, yeah. Yeah, so did you watch the video? I did. Did you laugh? I did. <laughs> Good, so that's the first, first, first step. Um, yeah, I loved it, I absolutely loved it and I really want to do more of it. Um, so yeah, if any of you need a comedian to come to your event and do, I've got five minutes worth of <laughs> content that I know works. And so it was actually, um, I went on a course called the Sustainable Stand-Up Course run by a woman called Belina Rafi. And Belina is a good friend of um, my dear friend Adam who runs Global Service Jam. And Adam's been saying to me for years that you really need to spend time with Belina and get into improv and stand-up because I've got all the ingredients of... You know, I really enjoy being on stage. I'm really good at it. I enjoy telling stories. Um, and, yeah, it kind of ticks all the boxes in terms of um, what I'm good at. But also I really believe more and more that humour and comedy is a real vehicle that can persuade people and inspire people and educate people on stuff that normally you might not have permission to talk about so it's like comedians have got permission to talk about anything they want I think we're also seeing more and more of that, yeah. I think more comedians are bringing up bigger social issues yeah. and because it is a more liberal platform to do that Yeah. so I just loved that idea and then the, the biggest driver of why I wanted to do it was obviously up front I'm spending all my time trying to convince people to get on stage and people who are super nervous and scared and they feel sick at the thought of it and I kind of forget what that feels like because I don't get nervous really anymore when I talk on stage um, but the thought of talking on stage and trying to be funny certainly did make me feel sick so there was a it was an empathy exercise that I wanted to do to it was kind of my version of being up front like going really outside my comfort zone so the course was, we did every Friday night for a couple of hours for like six weeks or something, and then a show on the Saturday. Um, and yeah, I think I could definitely see there's huge overlap with um, design skills and mentality in terms of the kind of training and mindset that you get taught. So, you know, stuff around observation being very observant stuff around being very curious listening you know very similar themes and stuff that we were taught at art school I think there's definitely lots of crossover with facilitation which I do a lot of in my design process in terms of bringing stakeholders together and co-designing 
new products and services and stuff and improv in the world of stand-up can I think has made me a better facilitator and that it, it just heightens reinforced some of the stuff I already knew and also taught me new stuff about you know holding space and you know not being afraid to push people outside their comfort zone I think sometimes when you're when I'm facilitating certainly you get so focused on making sure everybody feels comfortable and safe that you forget actually this is an opportunity to kind of poke and play and give them a chance to get outside their comfort zone so it's like how you set up those structures and stuff for that to happen and I really loved yeah I mean it was really hard like don't get me wrong I had to practice a lot and for the first few weeks they just kept telling me that I was really angry and not funny and I was like but I am angry because it was the same time that Trump had got in and there was just you know Brexit and I needn't go on there's a big long list and I learned that um you, of course comedians can be angry and that's very valid but only when you really know what you're doing so when you're just learning and you try and be angry you just it's, it disengages people so the kind of big journey for me was learning how to talk about stuff that I really cared passionately about without being angry uh, and Belina said this lovely phrase to us about like finding joy so she said if you can find joy if you can find a joy in a moment that everybody else is angry, then you'll always win. And I just thought that was so special, so lovely. Because it's like if you can turn, you know, whether it be tampon tax or voting or, you know, abortion or whatever it is you want to make a stand about, if you can do that in a way that brings joy into those stories so that it will connect more people, then you're more likely to get some traction and for something to be changed. So, yeah, I loved it. I would recommend it to anybody, regardless of introvert, extrovert, like being on stage, don't like being on stage. I think every, I think they should teach it in schools. It was so powerful. Because your, like, your performance was just done in a... A comedy club at an open mic night, right? Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't as if it was a set up audience for that were going to laugh. No. You had no idea how they were going to react. No, I mean a lot of the audience were family and friends yeah. of other people in the course, so like they were never going to be mean. Um, and the compare was really great at like setting the scene of you know these guys are learning and weekend and stuff. So uh, yeah, that that obviously made it made it better. But I was so nervous. I was really really nervous. So you're going to do more? Yeah, I'd love to do more. So it's kind of on my list to look at look for some open mic nights in London. Because now I've got this set, like I've got five minutes that I know works and I know that I can do. So, yeah, definitely want to do more. Cool. Um, I want to wrap up. So I've got one last question. Um, so yeah, you obviously, the, your journey started in Dundee and you've been mm-hmm. a few places and ended up in London. Um and one of Dundee's issues at the moment, and something we've chatted about as well, sort of with a few other guests, is around the concept of retaining talent or attracting talent back. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, what would bring you back to Dundee? Ah, uh, it's a good, It's such a tough question because I think it's it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. Because what you know, I want unless it could build the infrastructure of a big city then 
it doesn't have that appeal. So, so what is it in the infrastructure that that you would look for, that you would want? Just the, the sheer volume of interesting yeah, people? Yeah, I think volume of people. I mean, it's down to the economy, really. It's like, you know, the, the, the investment, the opportunities, the resources. I do think something that we can all get better at in terms of, you know, the community you're building around this podcast is, and, the, and the people who are in Dundee and people like me who have got a really special affinity with the city but are not there anymore, is like how can we really maintain that relationship? So, you know, I go out of my way to go back and teach at Duncan and Jordanston. I um, get a lot of contact from students out of that school and I, you know, I really work hard to make time for them all and I keep in touch with a lot of people up there and always looking for opportunities and it's, it's like it's really tempting to go back to Glasgow or Edinburgh and have clients there but how, how can we get better at keeping those relationships really strong? So, you know, for example, it's like through this, you know, potentially we might work together on something else and then that brings another... It's like if that they're just making that network stronger and more solid so that... Um, it's not a case of the, the city losing out as much. It's a case of the city has produced brilliant people who are scattered all over, but we all have got this kind of invisible creative bond that can inevitably would add value to the city. Um, but my mum and dad are obsessed and in love with Dundee. I think it's quite likely that they might move there at some point in the future, which would um, obviously give me more reason to go back as well but I always yeah I'm a huge supporter and you know I, I hope I wouldn't need to say this but anybody listening who that I who's in the city who I can ever support by you know giving some feedback or sharing some stuff online or just somebody to talk to about a diff- any projects or whatever you know I'm always really up for that because I'm a huge champion of people in Dundee. I think that's it that we sort of need to mobilise those champions all around the world because there's plenty of great exports that we've had and people that have they are scattered to the winds yeah. all over the world and it's getting them to sort of be little beacons to, yeah. to say, well, maybe you should try this place or, yeah, so yeah, more of that would be great Yeah. Well, thanks very much um, uh, If the listeners want to find you and mm-hmm. uh, read more about your work mm-hmm. um, or your thoughts on your blog where do they find you? So, uh, redjotter.com is where you can find my blog and different ways to contact me. And I'm also on Instagram at redjotter. And yeah, we'd love to we'd love to hear from any listeners and, and keep in touch. Great, thank you. Well, thank you. And that was Lauren. Thanks to her for meeting up with me in London and having that chat. Um, it was really insightful and I'd really urge you to go and check out our stand-up. It is hilarious. And again, in the theme of, I mean, of all her work, there's this sort of social conscience and she makes some amazing points um, in a really funny way. So, yeah, go and check that out. Um, also, Upfront, such a good project. Um, if you are doing conference speaking or you know someone who is or you know people who are organising a conference, go and check it out. I think diversity is something that's lacking across the design sector, the creative sector. Um, it's very much white male dominated, 
and we need to promote diversity in as many ways as we can and Upfront is a fantastic way of doing that so yeah definitely go and check that out um, and get nudging people who who aren't doing it already to, to sort of share their stage but yeah so if you don't follow already get on to at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram or facebook.com forward slash group forward slash CCC Dundee and that's the best place to keep up to date with all the new episodes and everything else that's happening with the podcast. Um, and if you would like to support it, if you would like to keep this going and keep the great content and the great chats that I'm having with so many creative people rolling in, then you can support the podcast by buying some merchandise. So I've got badges for a pound, I've got prints and mini books available for a tenner each. So you can go to cccdundee forward slash store and you can get all the merch on there. But I really do appreciate um, all the people who have bought it already. Um, and if you have got anything out of it, if you have enjoyed a few episodes, then yeah, give something back. And yeah, hopefully we can keep this going as, as long as possible. But that's it for this week. Uh, the only thing that's left to do, as I said I would do last week, is to recommend a podcast to sort of get people listening to more podcasts and sort of grow your knowledge or understanding and share a little bit about why I listen to things and, and what I listen to. Because I think it's a really healthy, it's a healthy thing to sort of show the breadth and depth of podcasts that are out there and it's really difficult. It's kind of like when you go on Netflix and you're looking for a film or you're looking for a TV series to start and you're like, I don't want to waste my time with something rubbish. But then you waste your time trying to find something that's not rubbish and you're browsing for an hour instead of just actually getting on and watching something. So hopefully these recommendations can give you something of a, a relatively good quality to listen to and something that will be enjoyable. Um, so the first recommendation um, of mine is one that when it comes out every week, it's one of my go-tos. So if it's on the list of new releases on the podcast app that I use, then it gets downloaded, it gets listened to right away. And that is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. And that's run by stand-up comedian Stuart Goldsmith. Um, what's funny is, I mean, Stuart isn't massively well-known in his own right, but he's built a massive following um, of the Comedian's Comedian podcast um, by having fantastic comedians on. I mean, you'll know many of the big names like um, Catherine Ryan to Russell Howard or Jimmy Carr. I mean, he's, he's had most of the comedians that are out there and working, he'll have had them on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's up to something about 200 episodes or, or more than that at least and they are just fantastic. I think what's so enjoyable about it is what... Stuart really does is, is dissect people's approaches to comedy, um, why they are the way they are, why they sort of create the personas and the characters that they have on stage, um, how they craft their work, and really gets to the nitty gritty. And I think what I really admire about it is the way that he asks his questions and the way that he pulls out the answers from the guests and really digs deep and that's something that I'd really aspire to and to do it I really want to do a bit more of with the podcast is sort of yeah really hound the guests a bit more and, and sort of pull out the real gems I think that are set just under the surface that people maybe aren't giving up quite as easily as as you think they might so I'd highly recommend that I mean it's really entertaining it's really funny um, but sort of insightful as well from a sort of creative process uh, angle and yeah 
if you do fancy it, go and pick some comedians that you like or that you've heard of and go and listen. I mean, for me, it sort of got to that tipping point where I now listen to it no matter who the comedian is because I know that, that the interview is so good um, and it's so consistent over such a long period of time that, yeah, it's fantastic. So, yeah, that's the Comedians Comedian Podcast with Stuart Goldsmith. Um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes. But that's that for this week. Till next week. Goodbye.